Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Hi, and welcome to Concord Matters. This is Pastor Sean Smith, uh, in, live inside the studios of KFUO Radio today. It is a great pleasure to be here with you as we begin the month where we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, or at least the event that kicked it off, that we talk about why Concord matters, why agreement in our Christian confession still matters 500 years later, and it'll matter all the way until the day Christ comes again. And so it's our pleasure to uh, be here and have this discussion with you uh, today. Uh, joining me in studio today is the usual host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, Woo-hoo. who asked me to talk today. So I'm 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 handling the host duties. We're, and, a, we're a team. It's nice yeah. to share. Teams and friends share. It's it's nice. Yeah. Especially, you know, 30 seconds before we go on That's when right. you ask me That's to right. do that. Yeah. Uh but also joining us also a part a solid part of our team. A a great part of our team. Pastor Peter Ill, who is pastor of Trinity in Milstadt, Illinois. It's wonderful to be here. The, an, right. the angelic license to Ill himself. Yeah, I don't hand out the nicknames quite like you no, do. Yeah, no, That's not as fun for me. That's all right. I can do it better from the peanut gallery over here than uh, from the host seat. That's that true. gives me time to think about it now. Yeah, and, awesome. now, and now you can just you know talk about what you want to talk about and not try to get us to talk about what you want to what talk about. What I want to do is go off on a tangent about the necessity of the Reformation theology. Why don't you go ahead and do that? No, no, you're going to do that. Okay. Well, <laughs> meanwhile, how about we start with our confessions, which we're still in this chief article of our Christian doctrine, Article 4, 5, 3, whatever it may be, uh, of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, that article on justification and good works, their, their relation there. And uh, we are picking, picking up with paragraph 180 in... Let me just go ahead and read here for a little bit, and then and then we'll talk about it and maybe pick up any kind of tangents as we go along. So, beginning with paragraph 180. For if they think that they have a reconciled God because they love and keep the law, they will always doubt whether they have a reconciled God. This is so because they either do not feel this love, as the adversaries acknowledge, or they certainly feel that it is very small. Much more often they feel that they are angry at God's judgment. They feel he oppresses human nature with many terrible evils, with troubles of this life, with terrors of eternal anger, and so on. When, therefore, will conscience be at rest? When will it be quieted? When, in this doubt and in these terrors, will it love God? What else is the doctrine of the law than a doctrine of despair? Let any one of our adversaries come forward to teach us about this love, how he himself loves God. They do not at all understand what they say. They only echo, just like the walls of a house, the little word love without understanding it. Their teaching is confused and shadowy. It not only transfers Christ's glory into human works, but also leads consciences either to arrogance or to despair. 
But our teaching, we hope, is readily understood by pious minds and brings godly and wholesome consolation to terrified consciences. I'm going to go ahead and pause there. Um, Melanchthon, it seems to me, at least as I read through this, is channeling his, you know, the the leader uh, for us, Martin Luther here, who clearly, big part of the kicking off the Reformation was his terrified conscience. Mm, yeah. Luther writes a lot about this. And, and it sounds like, you know, maybe Melanchthon is tapping into this. And, and I, I would agree that this is a great struggle, this terrified conscience. How do we really have peace with God? And I think before we get to how do we have peace with God, we need to talk a little bit about how it is that uh, we get to be so afraid of God. Because uh, for Luther, it was the the hidden God, the God who was not very well known at all, who continued to not... Uh, not be able to be known by Luther, to be known so imperfectly. And so Luther was continually afraid of God, uh, who was hidden. Uh, Luther used the Latin phrase, Deus absconditus, the, the hiding God. Uh, God on your back. We're all afraid of what we don't know, right? Uh, when I was little, I was afraid of the dark. Some would say I still am, but I try really hard not to be. Uh, but... Why is it that people are afraid of the dark? You don't know what's out there. You don't know what's going to come next. And that can be downright terrifying. And when you transfer it from being afraid of the dark to afraid of a God who you don't know and afraid of a God who has all power and all authority and can treat you in any way that he thinks is right, it can get really uncomfortable to have this unknown hidden God. And... Melanchthon and Luther are both recognizing just that challenge. If God is hiding, if God isn't fully known, if God hasn't revealed himself to you, you are in deep, deep trouble, mister. But Melanchthon is arguing, right, you guys are talking about God who is angry, God who is wrathful. You're not talking about the love of God in Christ that is for you, that is in you, that is to you. But that is exactly what we receive from Christ in his word and in his sacraments. They're trying to paint the word love onto the hidden God, though, right? They're trying to make the the God who you cannot find out in nature or in the feelings, the confines of your heart, seeking his approval. They they try to paint a loving God's face on him by saying you're going to love him enough. And yet, I think Luther's theology of the hidden God, really the the point there, the God on the the back, as you said, Pastor Hill, the point there is that the God who we see in nature is a God of wrath, a God of, of rage and anger, which what this reminds me of then is kind of that question that sadly the atheist is the whipping boy for but the, the question that they ask you know how could a good law, god let a let, let such evil things happen how could he do such a thing that they they feel god's anger and judgment that's all that you feel if you go looking for god out in nature uh, that's all you're going to find and yet the the roman catholic theologians are preaching well there's a there's a good god of love out there somewhere try work climb and the Protestant age today that we kind of associate with American Christianity, although there's Roman Catholics here too, they, they have the same theology. Go find God in the in the wind or in in the inner workings of your heart. And and all of it is a pushing back to to despair. The other thing that's made me think of uh, was how much the world is shouting love, love, echoing the word as if it means something, right? But they, I love this language. It's like, the, it's like just the sounds bouncing off the walls of a house. It has no substance. Well, so that's kind of... 
nuts. Yeah, you don't understand it. And I, yeah, we do this with a lot of words in our culture, too. We mm. kind of throw them around, you know, faith, hope, peace, love, you know. Mm. And I, I would say all of those fit into that. And even, unfortunately, yeah, many within the church that call themselves Christian use these words, but they're empty, hollow words. You know, I love that imagery, too. You know, it's just bouncing off the walls. And it's like you talk about this love, but you don't really know what it is. And especially as it's tied in with justification here, we've talked about this some before. It, it it really is a matter of we're talking about justification in two different ways. Is justification a way that I am brought objectively into a right relationship with God, our heavenly father, this God that's on my back that demands perfect righteousness. Go and be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? You know, Jesus makes no bones about that. Or is justification just a way that I feel all right with who I am, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so that I can go out there and do these works. And now I need to be pointed to the works that I need to do, uh, you know, whether that be, um, you know, giving of alms or uh, uh, buying indulgences, you know, or as it is, you know, being the parking lot ministry attendant and active in my church, you know, whatever it may be, as it tends to play out in Protestantism today, uh, we see it differently. Uh, but yeah, it, it's how are you defining justification? And for us, biblically speaking, it's going to get to this point here in a minute, because what they're doing here in the apology is making the case, right, you know, uh, of um, our, our position of what justification is quite extensively. We are making the case that it brings us into that right relationship with God. It gives us that righteousness that we can't get any other way. But there's a big difference between justification and self-justification. And that's a lot of what Melanchthon and Luther and the Reformers and the Lutheran Confessions and us today are all working about. Our justification is in Jesus Christ, our Lord, who suffered and who died and who rose, giving us his righteousness and his perfection. There is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves, but our sinful flesh... Uh, especially within the church, tries to convince Christians that we need to go out there and do things in order to justify ourselves, to make ourselves good enough, righteous enough, and to make it so that people like us. But the truth is, we can't do it. And so we end up caught realizing, I can't justify myself. I can't show anybody, including God, that I'm worth it. It is only from what comes outside of me, the love the righteousness, the grace of Jesus Christ, that any of us is justified. I think some of the genius of the argument here is showing that when you go out and you try to sh try to do it yourself, as you're saying, Pastor Hill, and you find the God of wrath that we were talking about earlier, the God on your back, that doesn't help you love God more. It, it pushes you the entirely other direction. So, so when, it, when do you ever walk into a courtroom and love the judge? You know, and feel like, oh, warm and fuzzy judge. I want to be closer. You know, you want out of there as fast as you can. You want him to say innocent and go away, right? You want to get through that. And so they're they're basically demonstrating again how backwards the theology is. And you know, we've we've said this repeatedly, so I'll, I'll stop and throw it back. But it's it's entirely inverted from what truth is, even on a reasonable level. If you're going to have somebody love you, they're going to do so not because you command them to love you. They're going to do it because you love them. Yeah. And, and I want to push forward here because they get exactly into this courtroom discussion and, and, and defining how we're using the term justification. And it's not in a courtroom sense. 
and and especially not in a philosophical sense. But uh, before we jump ahead, okay. I want to I jump in for just a second go ahead. Uh, to say Melanchthon is very clear here. As we sit here, we all go, wow, when God comes and you don't know him, it's it's terrifying and, and we are driven to despair. But there are some who are led to arrogance who say, yeah, I can do that. Um, the despair is awful. But so is the arrogance that says, yes, I can keep the law. I can do it. Um, and it seems... It seems so egregious that it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it, that there are people even in the church who say, yeah, I can do the law, but there are people who do just that. And I think we do need to take a deep breath and recognize that arrogance is out there, even in the church, just like the despair that God can't love a schmuck like me is out there in the church. And we look to both those things, but as we go on, Melanchthon's going to have an answer both to arrogance and to despair. Absolutely. Let me let me push forward. For as the adversaries mock that also many wicked people and devils believe, as uh, comes from James uh, chapter 2, verse 19, we have frequently said already that we speak of faith in Christ, namely a faith in the forgiveness of sins, a faith that truly and heartily assents to the promise of grace. This is not brought about without a great struggle in human hearts. People of sound mind can easily judge the faith that believes we are cared for by God, that we are forgiven and heard by him. It is something that surpasses nature. For by itself, the human mind makes no such decision about God, 1 Corinthians 2. Therefore, this faith of which we speak is neither in the wicked nor in devils. Furthermore, if any learned person objects that righteousness is in the will and therefore it cannot be attributed to faith, which is in the intellect, the reply is easy. In the schools, even such persons acknowledge that the will commands the intellect to agree with God's word. We say also quite clearly, just as the terrors of sin and death are not only thoughts of the intellect, but also horrible movements of the will fleeing God's judgment, so faith is not only knowledge and intellect, but also confidence in the will. In other words, it is to want and to receive that which is offered in the promise, namely reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. I want to pause there. Uh, Pastor Earl, you want to jump in here with uh, tying in about this this intellect that he's talking about here and this ascent to it. Sure. Uh, this is especially a temptation, I think, for, for us as Lutherans. We like to be able to uh, cogitate and to think about our faith and to have an understanding. Uh, just last night, uh, we get to have a, a Monday night church service at the church I serve. And uh, one of my, my five-year-old Christians that... Uh, comes to church, bounced up to me, and she got really serious all of a sudden. She said, Pastor, I'd like to ask you a question. And she looked at me, and she asked a really good question. Where, uh, sorry, who made God? And I looked at her, and I said, well, that's a great question. Nobody made God. He's always been there. And she looked at me with deep, perplexed eyes. And I said, that's right. I don't understand it either. And that's okay. Because so often we want to understand, we want to have a God that we can grasp and know who fits into confines. But we have a God who is uh, limitless, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, who is good and loving. And we can't understand those terms. We simply have faith that our God has indeed done these things, and our God is these things, and it's not up to us to understand it. 
that's okay. We simply take God at his word and we believe it as he has transformed our will to believe him and as we receive his gifts of goodness and mercy and grace. And that's really where we have to stop because our human mind can't do any more than that. Yeah, when we grab onto this, uh, I, w- I want to back up to the one of the very first things you said there. Oh, okay, good. My brain is spinning in a hundred directions now. Uh, we as Lutherans do have this great struggle uh, because, especially with something like the apology here, we do get so in depth in our theology Mm -hmm. and it's a great gift to the church i think that we need that in the church i think that lutherans have this um you know good strong historical position here but at times it becomes our own pride issue too that that ascent into the intellect that it kind of draws us away from god even as it could for the pharisees in in the new testament that jesus encounters and so forth but ultimately at at its heart this ascent into the truth of God is merely the child grabbing onto that reality that this, this is the faith like that of a little child. It clings to this promise. All righteousness is satisfied for me in Christ. And I desire to know more about this righteousness that he has done objectively for me. And I, I contribute nothing to it. And so then I see it as pleasing and good and happiness. And it's like, yeah, I I want to dig into more of that. But our sinful heart constantly has that temptation to to draw us back into that. We get a little caught up in our intellectual ascent of this. And um, it's a great struggle. And that reminds me of the first verses of Matthew chapter 18. Usually when we think about Matthew 18, we think about uh, that's the Christian discipline chapter. But before that, the disciples are arguing in front of Jesus about who among them is the greatest. And so Jesus goes and he gets a little child and he says, whoever is like this little child uh, is the one who enters the kingdom of God. Uh, And no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are like this child. And that's where a lot of times we will very piously spin off and go, oh, we need to be like like spiritual children and we need to have this faith like a child. And I'm, to be honest, not quite sure what we mean when we say that. But I had another pastor point out to me, when we talk about children, they tend to be gullible. They tend to be overly trusting. They tend to get themselves into trouble. Uh, why is it that parents have to childproof their homes, putting, you know, the, the covers on the electrical outlets and the baby gates so their children don't fall down the stairs? It's because children are overly trusting. We're called to have this faith that God, who is good, who is loving, who is kind, who is merciful, will continue to give his love to us, even though we're liable to try to stick our fingers in the electrical outlets. Uh, Not that anybody should actually go do that, just so we're clear. Um, But we have that promise that our God protects us as a loving father protects his dear children. Trust is only called naivety in a world where there are lies, right? In a world of lies, trust is, is to be naive. So in this broken age in which we live... That thing which is most necessary is actually dangerous, right? And yet it's the thing it's the thing that having lost it and made the lies ourselves needs to be restored to us. The line that jumped out to me the most in that segment there was uh, up in paragraph 42, just three words, faith that believes. I think that the Roman 
opponents here as they're arguing, as well as uh, those who these days would, would kind of find an antinomian behind every corner, are constantly afraid of a faith that doesn't believe which isn't faith. And we're trying, we're at pains right now at this point in the, in the apology to define faith as simply belief, right? Not as some other thing that pretends to believe. That would be unbelief. That would be a hypocritical faith. And we certainly don't think that that saves. We think faith that believes saves. And so faith will look to the right object. It will seek the the truth of God's word and its law and, in his law and gospel and and all this stuff. So I, I don't know. I, I, I love that phrase, faith. Faith that believes, because I think it just cuts through the argument so keenly. And if we were all to acknowledge that that's what faith means as a word, oh, faith is believing these things. Uh, the argument with the Romans, and again, some of our more modern day uh, internet arguments, I think would go away pretty quick. Yeah, and I love what you just said there, that it, it is the object. And that's what we mean when we talk about objective justification. Uh, and, and he ties this right in with where, where I just ended there. So faith is not only knowledge in the intellect, but also confidence in the will. In other words, it is won't want and to receive the, I'm stumbling over my words. In other words, it is to want and to receive that which is offered in the promise, namely reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. When that's the object, when that's when I, I, I see it's, it's satisfied for me right there. I am just going to grab onto that and hold on to it. I'm going to believe like a scared that. Child, like a scared child seeing the parent, right? Yeah. And, and it guides my will. It guides my intellect. And that's what we were just talking about, too. I mean, it, it guides me in these ways. But to turn it around the other way and to, to say, you know, kind of as the Romans were defining this, as I said, you know, that, that, you know, basically what Christ did on the cross makes me okay with myself, but I, I need to have, I need to control my will to make it worthy of what Christ did. Well, now, now I'm in a heap of a mess because I don't really want to believe that because I recognize I fail at it all the time, but it, it is the reconciliation of the forgiveness of sins. It's done. It's the object of my faith, and it drives my intellect and knowledge. I think we better wrap up there, go to break, and we'll come back, and maybe uh, I'll figure out how to host a show in the meantime. St. Louis Best in food, beer, spirits, and coffee will be on tap at the Brew in the Lou Festival Saturday, October 14th, from 1 until 5 p.m. at Francis Park in St. Louis Hills, benefiting Lutheran education. Brew in the Lou is more than just a tasting festival, live music, dancing, vendor sampling, and selling. For information on wristbands, l-e-s-a-s-t-l dot o-r-g. Or on the phone, 314-200-0797. Brew in the Lou. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Every day, things happen that affect the lives of Lutherans worldwide. Whether it's mercy efforts to a disaster-stricken community, threats to religious liberty, or cultural trends. World Lutheran News Digest takes an in-depth look at one issue each week as I interview newsmakers and experts. While Sarah Gulseth presents a quick look at the week's news. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. 
KFUO embracing today's technologies to bring the good news message of Christ to the world. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth or sync up to listen in your car while driving anywhere. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org. On the air, online, and on demand, the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. The first edition of Martin Luther's New Testament in 1522 was a bestseller. It had a print run of 3,000 copies, selling out completely within weeks. His translation of the Bible into German wasn't the first, but it became the translation with the most impact. Luther chose a Saxon dialect understood throughout Germany, and he was the first to consult the original Greek and Hebrew texts when translating the Bible into German. It became the Bible used to teach reading and the German language. Klaus Reichert, former president of the German Academy for Language and Poetry said, the Luther Bible is one of the greatest works of German literature of the Renaissance, a Bible still used in Germany today. Die Bibel. Engage with the Bible, with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Life moves pretty fast. One way or the other, it's pretty much guaranteed to pass you by. Missing out on a spelling bee or a softball game is bad enough, but what happens when you and your family miss out on God's Word? That's why we're here, reminding you every step of the way that the Word of God is not about what you do, but about what Jesus has done for you. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. to Concord Matters after that break there. I am still Pastor Sean Smith, although I didn't tell you earlier where I'm from, but if you're a regular listening to the show, you know that I serve a dual parish in Southern Illinois. That is St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel West Point. And I am joined today by Pastor Jonathan Fisk, who is a host here at KFUO and does an excellent job always in allowing me to guest host and him to be my guest today, which is a real turn and, and a great joy. I, I is speaking for living times. Yeah. And Pastor Peter Ill, also a regular part of our team, is also in studio here with us, and he's the pastor of Trinity in Millstadt. And we were just talking about the object of our mm. Christian faith, that which justifies us, that is Christ Jesus, the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, that's the promise offered us, and they, Melanchthon has scriptural support for this. So go yeah, ahead and, and take Yeah, and he's going to go ahead and unpack that, starting here in Apology Article 4. Uh, if you are following along at home, that is in the uh, reader's edition of the Book of Concord, the one with the black cover on page 130. And in paragraph 184, it picks up, Scripture uses the term faith this way, as the following sentence of Paul testifies in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in this passage, to justify means, according to court language, to acquit a guilty person and declare him righteous. But this happens because of the righteousness of another, namely, of Christ. This righteousness is communicated to us through faith. 
Therefore, since our righteousness in this passage is the credit of righteousness of another, we must here speak about righteousness in a way different than in philosophy or in a civil court. There, we seek after the righteousness of one's own work, which certainly is in the will. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our richness and sanctification and redemption. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But because Christ's righteousness is given to us through faith, faith is righteousness credited to us. In other words, it is that by which we are made acceptable to God on account of the credit and ordinance of God. As Paul says, faith is counted as righteousness in Romans 4 verses 3 and 5. And I think that's probably a good place to stop as we get to uh, consider these wonderful words that it is faith is being credited righteous by God. It is Christ, the innocent, perfect, sinless one who became your sin. And what an image that is of of that great exchange being swapped for our sin. Jesus becomes our sin and we become Christ's righteousness. Uh, It goes back to not being able to understand at all. And that's okay. Yeah, I I think here's a helpful place to point out something that I'm not sure we've actually specifically pointed out on the show before, but it does go all the way back to the Reformation. They're defining their terms here because what we really do have is a difference in what are we defining as justification. And very central to the Reformation, actually what kicked off the 95 Theses, this event that we use as the start of the Reformation that we're going to celebrate at the end of this month, uh, you know, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door, that discussion over it. Luther in his first Theses there says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ calls us to repent, he wills that the whole life of the believer be one of repentance. And he goes on in the rest of those 95 theses to define repentance as connected to this issue of justification. And the reason this is happening is because for the Catholics, they have come to define because of a mistranslation by Jerome in the Latin Vulgate of the Bible. Um, and, and, and this is where it's helpful to lay this out because some may not be aware of this. I, I kind of take it for granted because I've heard a, a lot growing up around the seminary here in St. Louis and having seminary professors teach Bible classes and my my congregations here growing up and things like that. But as I talk with people, I realize that some aren't even aware that there was this mistranslation hmm. that when in the Vulgate, it says repent, or, or rather not in the Vulgate, uh, in the original Greek where it says repent, in the Vulgate, it was translated do penance. And if your theologians, your church theologians, are are teaching that I have to do penance, right. that's going to that's gonna work with the way that they define justification. It plays and, right into the opinion of the law, right? It's like exactly. translating it in the yeah. worst possible way. Right. Well, and that's, that's exactly the point that he makes here in paragraph 185. Therefore, since our righteousness in this passage is the credit of the righteousness of another, we must here speak about righteousness in a way different than in philosophy or civil court. There we seek after the righteousness of one's own work, which certainly is in the will. And so if, if, if you've been operating from an understanding of scripture where I have to do penance, Mm -hmm. 
you're going to say, this is just like in the courtroom, right? Where I have to go in, I have to do my community service hours, whatever the judge assigns me. And then that makes it right in terms of the law, right? But here, that's not the nature of justification with Christ. It is completely outside of you. He has done it. He has credited your righteousness. He has done the work. And that's a completely different understanding than what they're working with here. And and that ties into the way we view repentance and everything else. Pastor Hill. And Melanchthon moves back and forth with this kind of a courtroom idea, too. Uh, this is where we use the word forensic justification sometimes. And I know uh, it, it wasn't as long ago as I would like to admit. When I thought that something was forensic, I thought that it was that somebody had died. Because hmm. when you turn on... Because CSI. <laughs> I was going to try not to drop the name of the show, but right. Uh, when you turn on CSI, they talk about forensics or forensic evidence. But what's forensic isn't that somebody died. It's that it's used in court. I got to meet a, a forensic accountant once. He was always called to be an expert witness uh, in cases of like embezzling and stuff. And super smart guy, way smarter than me. And this idea of forensic means a courtroom setting. And so Melanchthon starts by saying, this is a, a court term to be justified. But then he goes on and he says, but don't get carried away by the courtroom setting stuff. Because when you go into the court, you're always trying to uh, appease the judge. Yes, Your Honor, I this was the first time I've ever done something like this. I didn't mean it. I'll do better next time. And you, you try to appease the court and you try to appease the judge. And you do it by your own... Uh, self-will and self-interest that would be being penitential doing penance that is not the same as repenting and saying yeah what i did was really messed up what i did was sinful and i have no other option but to cast myself on your mercy that's what christ has called us to do not to show him how good we are and we just had one little slip up once but rather to say i'm a terrible sinner but I have faith in you, Jesus, that you became my sin so that I have your righteousness. And that is a promise that we get to take, not to the bank, but to eternal life. Yet, you know, this, this backs up to a, a point here, too, that he makes with Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is such a key passage here. And and when I recognize that it's it's not in my, you know, forensic ability to appease the judge, uh, you know, to say, ah, oh, this is my first time, I'll do better, you know, uh, thank you for allowing me to do better with what you did on the cross. No, like he actually said, yeah, this isn't even a court case anymore. It won't even show up on the record. Anymore. As far as the East is from the West, so far has God removed your iniquities from you. Yeah. And, and it defines exactly what we've said earlier about what we mean when we say justification is that it brings me into that right relationship with God. It, 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 what's the word I'm looking for here? I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget it. And then I, it conforms me to the will of God. That's what it means to have peace with God. And, and yet I, I take a look at this and he's gone on for a while and, and we're defining our terms still under what justification is. And we've been going on for a long time here and we've kind of made jokes about this, that, you know, it's Article 4, Article 5, Article 3, <laughs> love and fulfilling the law. And they really 
all do kind of tie in together. And that's why, uh, at least in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, they do just tie them in together. Is it is it, uh, you know, Article three, Article four, or Article five? But he is in, in, in some other editions. This would just be Article five on good works. Mm. What is the relationship here? Pastor Fist, since you made me host, I'm going to like throw you on the spot now uh, and, and talk about. What, what is the relationship here between having the right definition of justification, as we've just talked about, and good works? How does this flow out from this courtroom kind of language? Yeah, well, well, I don't know about, I don't know if I can answer the courtroom language thing, but the relationship, to be sure, if I do not know that I am free not to do a good work to earn something, I can't do a good work. All of my works will, in fact, instead be selfish, self-driven, ladder-climbing attempts to make myself better, which is the definition of evil, really, uh, to, to do something only for yourself and not for others. And so until I get justification right, I might be able to do what we would call civil good works, right? I, c- I can help my neighbor. They can benefit from me as a mask of God, just like they, you know, they benefit when a cow gives them milk and, and when a pagan emperor rules over them and doesn't tax them too much, but there's nothing particularly righteous in that in an eternal sense. The the works which will follow us into paradise that we confess, you know, that, that are truly unique to Christians are through this faith alone where we don't seek ourselves in what we have done. And then the blood of Christ then, you know, covers this entire thing up. So they're, they are connected and to even, even more so. You mentioned how we've been, we joke about, you know, we keep talking about Article 4 around and around, and we do, and it is, it is, it's gone on quite a while. But the thing is, in another sense, there's nothing else for us to teach. Every other article we confess comes back to this article anyway, right? That's why I love in the Augsburg Confession when they get into the new obedience, Article 6, the way they talk about good works, it says the new obedience is something we absolutely confess or in general, a man's going to do good works because Jesus died for him and it's all by grace alone. They start confessing Article 4 all over again by the end of, it's only like a paragraph and, and two-thirds of it's given to faith alone, even though it's supposed to be about new obedience. So all of what we believe comes kind of running back to the centrality of, and we, we've hit on this on several different levels. So you mentioned, Pastor Hill, earlier, Jesus being made sin for us, that he was credited with our evil, and then we are credited with his righteousness. More than that, it doesn't just say that we're credited with his righteousness. It says the faith which believes, this faith we're talking about, is the credit of his righteousness to us. So we can't actually believe unless that righteousness is the credit to us in the first place. Right? It, it, uh, the relationship is so entwined and so connected to the life that we live through trusting in God that then overflows in works of love that anyone could could try to be a Christian without this. It's madness. It's, it's just madness. I got one more thing before I throw it back to you. When you were, as we're talking about forensic, I, I, I had uh, etymonlined, which is the Google for etymology, uh, <laughs> etymonlined uh, the, the history of the word forensic. And it is related to or, or comes from the the Latin forensis, and we would hear that word in the word forum, right? To, to gather in a public forum or a public gathering place, which for them was like the the Senate, the cor- not just the court, but where they would gather to, to run the country. And so forensic justification is like in the highest level of legal terminology, publicly before the world, you are innocent. No one can accuse you. And so that's why Paul's going to get from Romans 5 to Romans 8. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Yeah. Which actually belongs in this segment too. It is God who justifies. That's the whole argument. You 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 said a whole lot in there. I did. And thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pick out one thing that you said, because the, the image that I got when you were talking about the definition of evil, right? You know, the doing things for myself. Mm. And if I'm doing the good works to to justify myself, 
you know, to make myself worthy before God. The picture I got was I'm only serving my neighbor to step on their head to climb a little Pretty higher. Much. Yeah. And, and it's like when you think about it in those terms, it's like, well, that's not a good work at all. Like, I, I don't care what I did for my neighbor. I don't care if I just like healed him of cancer. That is not a good work if I'm only using him to step myself higher. Uh, and, and maybe sometimes we need those images, or at least I needed that image in my mind um, to, to kind of re- recognize this is the centrality of faith and justification that is completely outside of myself. And you also talked about in there the, the crediting of evil mm, to Christ. To Jesus, yeah. Yeah. And and the crediting of righteousness to me, that's just if, huge. If I can only do good... In order to step on your head to, to get higher for me, like for a while we can get into this, I scratch your back, you scratch mine thing, but I will only do good to you as long it is, as it is good for me. So the moment that I don't have any benefit in it now, I don't, I don't care about you. <laughs> You're out the door. And, and, and that is the fall itself. That is where we are. We are trapped now. And so to be pulled out of that, we have to have d- new minds, right? The renewing of the mind to see that goodness isn't for me at all, which is, it's insane. Again, it's so backwards, you know, come and die is what Jesus says to you. And it, 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 there's nothing good for you in what you're going to do for another, suffer for the good. The only way you even begin to think in that kind of way is if you know that I'm already as good as I'm ever going to be because it's declared so by by Christ. Right. It's like Jesus said, uh, do not be like the Gentiles do. Do not just love those who love you right. and hate those who hate you. Rather, love those who hate you and do good for those who persecute you. Um, we have new minds as being the blessed, the faithful of God. And so within that new mind that we have been given and to which we are being conformed, we do good works, not because we think they're good, not because the forum or any other legal standing thinks that they're good, but because Jesus has called them good. Hmm. I don't understand how or why Jesus has called the things that I do good. It doesn't matter, though, because he has. And so those works that Jesus has called good are good because he's God and he said so. All right. Great. Thanks be to God. And then we go on with the work of loving our neighbors, be them our friends, our family, our enemies, or anybody else. We go on with that love, which Christ has called good, no matter what we say. Yeah, this this is the obedience that we have that that flows forth from faith. And that's exactly where he goes. I'm going to push us on a little further here. Actually, Pastor Fist, I'm going to call on you sure. to read. Where? Uh, pick up uh, paragraph 187 and take us until you think there's yeah, a good was that the, Yeah, Romans 4 was the last thing, right? So, although yeah. because of certain hard-to-please people, we must say technically, he's talking about you, Pastor Hill. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> we must say technically, faith is truly righteousness because it is obedience to the gospel. That's an interesting turn of phrase there. For it is clear that obedience to the command of a superior is truly a kind of distributive justice. So we're using 50 cent words left and right. This obedience to the gospel is credited for righteousness. So only because of this, because we grasp Christ as the atoning sacrifice, our good works or obedience to the law pleasing. That's, that's exactly what we were saying earlier. We do not satisfy the law, but for Christ's sake, this is forgiven us, as Paul says. Oh, that's just so huge too. There, and he's quote, quoting Paul, There is therefore, that's what I said earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. This faith gives God the honor, gives God that which is his own. By receiving the promises, it obeys him. 
And again, they're, they're speaking that, I think I think the language of obedience there, they're like, we have to speak this way because otherwise they're going to argue about it. So we're going to use the word obey even though it's not properly the way you would talk about receiving something, right? Uh, just as Paul also says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He's talking about Abraham there. So the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. Oh, that's awesome. On the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. However, we can offer nothing to God unless we have first been reconciled and born again. To say nothing of the fact that we can't offer him anything he hasn't already given us. Uh, This passage, too, he says, brings the greatest comfort as the chief worship of the gospel is to desire to receive the forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness. Christ says of this worship, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, which is to say, since Jesus says, the will of God is to believe I've saved you, and the Father says, believe whatever I say, get over yourself, I justified you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it was three months ago <laughs> when you talked about this, still in this article. Um, but uh, you talked about the image that, uh, and sometimes, and I unfortunately fall on the the side you were making fun of on on this. Um, but uh, you know, when we when we bring our offerings forward to the altar and we lift them up and we we set them on the altar, right? You talk about, you know, that's kind of the wrong mindset. And and you were very intentional in your parish ministry to not take the offerings. And now I have space limitations and pretty much the only place I have to put them is on the altar. Um, But uh, I I love the image that you used there in in describing that. It's exactly what what he's saying here too. We recognize that the gifts are coming from God to us. Mm. And that's exactly what the altar is for, is for Christ's body and blood for us, for the forgiveness of sins. And this all wraps up our understanding of stewardship and everything else too. When we recognize that all of this righteousness, all of this good works, all of this is satisfied in Christ and his gifts are constantly filling us. It's going to flow out in in my understanding then that, okay, all of this is really God's anyway. And he's entrusted into my Mm -hmm. stewardship, you know, that I be faithful with this. And he demands some of this be, to be used. Well, not in the New Testament. He doesn't demand it so much. In the Old Testament, he demands it. But in the New Testament, it should be a cheerful thing. Uh, and, and he says, you know, use this, you know, for the good of the church and, and the kingdom of the church on earth, right? Use this for the service of the neighbor. But if I understand that my gifts, you know, that that I am collecting together there uh, in the offerings and so forth are are an offering to God, you know, me lifting that up and not a response to the gifts that he has filled me with and and satisfied all righteousness for me with, then I'm going to have a wrong understanding Mm -hmm. of what we're doing there. And I I, I agree with you that it is a helpful thing to maybe distinguish that in what we do in the worship service. Mm -hmm. Um, I struggle in both of my parishes to to actually be able to do it. I don't know if I said it back then. I mean, that was... uh, an insight Hermes Sasa gave me in, in the first Lonely mm. Way volume where he, as a German, visiting the United States, was stunned. Couldn't believe that we put money on the altar. 
because they don't do that in Europe. Instead, they have these little boxes in the back of the church, and you put your offering in the back of the church on the way out. And he says, he actually, he, mock, he mocks us as Americans. He says, only Americans could ever think that that was a gift to give to God. And it's just like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. dude. Yeah. yeah. I saw a meme on Babylon Bee uh, just yesterday, which is, if you haven't checked out the Babylon Bee, it's pretty funny, but it said, you know, uh, newsflash, all the money, uh, 100% of money put in offering plate does not get to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of, it's at the, at the point you're talking about there, Right. Ultimately, we have nothing to give him. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Even the money we're putting in the offering plate is our service to our neighbor as response to what he's done for us. is to pay for the building where we receive word and sacrament. It's to support the mission of the church so others will believe. All those kinds of things. We've been kind of talking over you, Pastor. Oh, oh no, that's just fine. But Good. One we'll, of do, the we'll keep doing it then. Don't, uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to get a word in edgewise Good. here, though. Good. There's a sentence that is just fantastic. Uh Oh, where did it go? The worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. What a fantastic line. And this is something that in the parishes that I've been privileged to serve, uh, usually when I get there, they talk about we have a worship service at, you know, nine o'clock on Sunday morning. And I've always tried to be careful to get away from what I call the W word. Uh, because when I hear the word worship, right. it implies what we bring to God. And it very much calls to mind the idea of we bring our prayer and our praises and our offering, and we give them to God in the worship service. Because worship is about what the worshiper does for the worshipee. Uh, the word that I prefer is uh, divine service, where the divine comes and serves us with his gifts, with the body and blood of Jesus, with life, forgiveness, and salvation. Fantastic stuff. But here, Melanchthon makes a liar out of me. Uh, Go, Melanchthon. And he says that here we have worship and divine service as we receive the gifts of God. And so uh, there's no false dichotomy here, but why is it that Christians gather? We gather to receive God's gifts. It's not about who we are and what we do. It's about what we get. In this Christian life, we get to be takers. And that is God's gift for us, even as we are just like little children, going back to what we were saying before the break. You made me go back to Etam Online again for that word worship, because this is a, a whipping boy for me, and because it's, it's an English problem. Mm-hmm. It's a mistranslation that we have if you're Reformed and you listen, we love you. But we have to thank the King James Reformed for taking this word that is Godestines everywhere else is used and turning it into this word worship in English. And the word worship in English, we hear it rightly when we hear it as me to God, down to up, because it means it comes from the the, the root of the word worthy, uh, to to be worthy of reverence or to, or to give what is due to somebody, right? So we say, I'm going to worship. I'm going to give what is due to God, as opposed if I go to God serving me, Godestines, right? I go to receive something. So it is a good word to kind of, in English, recognize its limitations and and really kind of failing and not derive it as the main thing that we understand we're doing, even though you can't properly say the true worship of God is to receive, right? Okay, well, understood rightly, that's fine. Most people aren't going to understand that rightly without a lot of catechesis. And even when they do get that lots of catechesis, it's really easy to fall back into that idea of, of giving worship, or when you start to speak with others, they will hear you talking about, well, I go to worship and receive, and they'll think, well, you'll, you'll get to the point where you will be giving better. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and I think this all ties into exactly the, the, the point that you made earlier, uh, that we have they're using the word obedience simply because they know that's what <clears throat> the adversaries want to hear on this. Um, but here, 
I, I almost get the sense from Melanchthon, he's saying obedience and trying to define it rightly and even worship in this sense. I think these are all connected issues. But the key is, how do we understand where this, where we are made worthy with our praises that we offer? Mm. Where, where is it that our obedience comes in? And, and here we have to understand the direction, right? And so it takes me back here uh, right before paragraph 188. We do not satisfy the law, but for Christ's sake, this is forgiven us. Mm. So I don't worship rightly. I don't, I don't have a worthy praise to offer God. But this is forgiven me. Mm. The mm. direction there in God esteems, as you talked about, divine service, God's serving, God serving us. That's the direction, all right, that we're talking about in, in our Lutheran understanding of worship. But when we understand that it's the gifts of God coming and serving us, mm. then in obedience, then in worship, it can't help but happen. The good works will naturally flow forth, but we have to understand that direction. And when we twist things around and and we just define worship as us coming to offer our prayers, our praises, our offerings, things like that, as, as if, you know, this somehow makes us worthy to gather in the name Christian, well, then we have the 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 uh, flow of the action mm. wrong, and, and we have to recognize that our, our failure is what's forgiven us. And even in our moment of, you know, last time or not last time, last Sunday, I noticed like my voice kind of went out on me and I was like, man, I just sang that hymn kind of bad at, at one point. And I was actually literally thinking in the midst of the hymn, I was like, I'm doing a bad job of worshiping God. This is not a worthy, worthy hymn. Uh, and I, I like to take a lot of pride in my singing. And yeah, so, I know. Uh, but, a, uh, so it was kind of a, like, it you was should a, hear it, it when you're on. It was a rough thing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. Even, even when I think I'm on, I'm still not, uh, because uh, I have this broken voice and sin and I always hit the right notes, but, but that too is forgiven us. Mm. Right. And so it spurs me on all the more, uh, to continue to receive those gifts so that I can be strengthened to worship, to obey, to do good works. I want to be the king of Edom online again with the word obey, which Man, we can't, we cannot hear, we are. cannot hear that word obey in English. I don't want to say this word because we hear it as a law word, but it's actually a gospel word. It's the same as the Greek hupakuo. It's from ab, which means to, and audiere, which is to listen. So to obey is simply to hear somebody. That's all it is historically. Of course, if someone says jump and you would hear them and love them and trust them, you would jump. But if they say, I forgive you, to obey is to believe. <laughs> Ta -da. Dropping the Edom online. Edom, oh here. man, I, I'm I'm an I'm a literature nerd, nerd, English nerd. My degree is English. Do you know that? Yeah, I did yeah, know okay. that. Yeah, uh, I, I married a wife that. Uh, uh, that's her major as well, and mm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a lot of etymology these days. Good. Before we go off on our curricula vitae <laughs> over here, um, I think it's important to note though that the the worshipper is the one who ascribes worth or worthfulness, worthiness to the worshipee. We've gone through, and in the flow of uh, the Augsburg Confession, in the apology of the Augsburg Confession, we started by saying, God is good. That's in Article 1. Article 2 is, we are full of sin. Here, by the time we get to Article 4, who are we to say anything about God being worthy. 
we can't ascribe to him any good because there is no good within us at all. And so we simply end up saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is no, no worth that I can give to God. My worth comes from God, from the object, the author and perfecter of my faith. And that's where our hope is and not in my self-giving worthiness to God. Absolutely. I also want to jump on, you know, we, we are in this month of, uh, celebrating the Reformation and and this word obey that you just gave us from the Edom online to listen to hear is that is that what you were saying yeah yeah, yeah. so isn't it amazing that that's the very nature of our Christian confession that's the very nature of our Augsburg mm-hmm. confession we hear the word of God that speaks us righteous that says you are justified by Christ's righteousness and we hear that word. And our obedience naturally flows forth from that, and that's the etymology of confess, confessio in the Latin, right, is agree. I agree. I, I, I agree with this. This is my uh-huh. confession also. And uh, and that's always the gospel. That has been the gospel for 500 years. That's been the gospel for long before that. It's been the gospel since Christ accomplished it for us on the cross. Thank you for tuning in today for Concord Matters. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. I'm Pastor Sean Smith with Pastor Fisk and Pastor Peter Ill. You keep confessing, church.